The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following program belong solely to the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, our parent company, advertisers, or affiliates. Welcome to Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of support for individuals in recovery from substance misuse and mental health-related issues. There are numerous pathways to recovery, and each week we welcome powerful leaders and role models who have struggled in drug and or alcohol addiction, have found a pathway to recovery, and who thrive as positive community members with an ongoing vision of success. Join us as we share our experiences, strength, and hope. When the world says, give up, hope whispers. Try it one more time. What's going on, Recovery Family? And welcome back to Sharing Our Stories. My name is Slim with Nani Al Jalil from Tribe Recovery Homes. Our guest is John Doubleday sitting between us, John Doubleday from New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Our first, I believe it's our first guest first ever from Louisiana, New Orleans. Wow. That's right. Yeah. So you you got pressure. To represent the entire state of Louisiana, all people in recovery from Louisiana, it's on you today. Awesome. <laughs> uh, my, if this is your first time checking in with us, this is sharing our stories. And this program is all about addiction and recovery. We bring in folks who have dealt with addiction to drugs and or alcohol. And we talk about not only that addiction, but also they share in their recovery because we want people to know that, yes, recovery happens. There's a lot of people suffering from addiction to drugs and alcohol, and they just don't think that they can get sober. I know because I was once one of those people. So we just want to share that Recovery happens. And if you or somebody that you know, love, care about is suffering an addiction, let them know this program exists and that they can learn that, yeah, there's a lot of pathways to recovery. And we're going to learn about another one here today. So before we get started, Nani, my sweetheart, my sister from another mother. Yes. You and also John this week have been at the Winter Symposium in Colorado Springs. We have. Which is not what I thought a, a recovery meeting on the mountain like a recovery <laughs> ski week oh, it is not it's that. not recovery ski week <laughs> no it is not um, a ski week but uh the winter symposium in, in colorado springs mm-hmm. uh it's about to celebrate next year it's 50th anniversary yes mm-hmm. right. i believe so that's what i learned from john i know nothing i know nothing about this until yeah. you told me earlier this week hey i'm gonna be at the winter symposium so mm-hmm. what is it yeah so what it is um kind of uh a summary of it is basically a bunch of professionals and non-professionals and everybody gets together. Which one are you? I am. I like to think of myself as a professional. Slam. Yes, I'm a professional. Um, But everybody gets together and there's opportunities for lots of different seminars, but it's people within substance use, mental health, healthcare, um, and everybody is working together to fill in the gaps. It's evidence-based research and people are talking about what's going on in the world and um, how people can work together to, to figure out how we can just better support people. And addiction medicine and addiction and substance use, behavioral health care. Yeah, tons of different seminars. Yeah, just what's what's happening out there. Yeah. um, And how everybody can work together. And you're down there for it also? Yes, there's um, I'm with Hazelbrook Sober Living. So um, we definitely uh, set up a booth there as well. And we get to just uh, connect with, you know, a lot of different community partners and share resources amongst one another and Mm -hmm. just find out what one another's doing you know what's what we're up to how can we better fill those gaps like noni was saying um just to support our clients you know more effectively so so how'd you guys find out about you you probably found out about it through work winter symposium yeah. what did people learn about this yeah so they what the way that we found out about it is you know we're on we're on lists and they send mm-hmm. invitations out so you sign up for it um this was so tribes. this is more for people in the field yeah, of recovery field. Mm-hmm. yes you're in the field of recovery or healthcare or behavioral mm-hmm. health um so you're in the field and then you, you know, you sign up for it. This year, Tribe had a booth. Hazelbrook obviously had a booth as well. Um, but then other professionals or people just within the field, they go and they attend the seminars. And um, and it's a great, it's a great, great opportunity to network and become better connected with like-minded individuals. All right. um, and I know for for Tribe, at least, I mean, I met people. I'm, I have met so, so many people and just become so much more familiar with what other people are doing out there and how we can support each other better and how we can collaborate better um, and have a greater understanding of, w- of what some of those resources are and also where we are lacking in resources um, and where we can pick up some of the pieces, um, where we can pick up some of the pieces and, and also where I see uh, where we can help you know, so what I like is that recovery, the recovery field isn't a competition. 
It's not a, it's oh, right. I need to be the biggest, yeah. you know, sober living facility and I will eat up all my competition yeah. to be on the top. And it's really a teamwork thing where everybody's exactly. always working together like, oh, we can't take this person. Can you take this person? Exactly. We can't find a place for this person. This person doesn't use our services, but they need your services. Exactly and everybody's right. always cross cross mingling like that. Yeah, and it's, it's so awesome. Yeah, exactly. So that was one of the things being, you know, tribe recovery homes being a Medicaid provider um, for those agencies that don't accept Medicaid. It's like, how can we support each other? Um, if you are private insurance only, you know, if you're getting Medicaid calls, you know, please send them our way. And for, for um, private insurances, we, you know, we need to work better together so that we're making sure people have as much access to care as is possible. Um, and those are those gaps, right? Being sure to fill those gaps. And so, how long does this go on for down there in the Springs? Um, it started on Sunday, oh, wow. Sunday mid morning, uh, and it ends tomorrow afternoon. So it's a yeah. week long event. Yeah. That's yeah. happening. Yeah. And you have vendors coming in from, I mean, different areas of the country, like Texas and yeah, you know, just Texas different, was there. Yeah. A lot of different states. And so it's, it's really good to just connect, like Noni was saying, and, all right. you know, meet some of these other individuals and what they're doing. Well, I'm going to need a full update when it's all done yes. on how you think it all went. Yes. Next week, I'm, that's going to be the first You'll thing. You'll get is, my full review. What is the, the full rundown on the Winter Symposium? You'll get my full review, Slim. You got it. That's right. And, and you have to like, you have to make it really exciting. Okay. All right. Because you got to bring in the all audience. Pizzazz. That's right. You got to yeah. add pizzazz, bells, whistles, it. fireworks. All right. <laughs> so it. our guest this week, Mahai, is John Doubleday from New Orleans, Louisiana. And you work uh, here in the Mahai at the Hazelbrook Sober Living Yes. Um, shout out to them. Great people that have come by here before. Um, as we just said, everybody working together. Mm-hmm. Um, but John is our guest for sharing our stories. And I know that this is going to be a, a powerful share. Um, and for those of our listeners who have been incarcerated um, and have have wondered, you know, about your recovery and where can you end up? I think that John is going to give you a, a tremendous story about where you can end up. So I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for being our guest and our guest for sharing our stories is John Doubleday. Thank you for having me, Slim. Um, so my name is John Doubleday. Um, I'm a case manager and peer recovery coach for Hazelbrook Community Center. Um, and uh, my path to recovery was, let's just start, I guess, with my uh, where I started in my addiction. Um, I started at a young age. Um, just drinking for the most part. And then, uh, I have, you know, progressed in a smoking weed and then trying cocaine and things like that. And I, um, I really started getting in trouble probably around middle school. Um, and just getting, uh, everything from like getting suspended, um, to working my way to, you know, getting expelled from two of my high schools. Um, that was something that I took pretty hard because, I felt like I was like constantly trying to, you know, meet new friends or like, you know, trying to prove myself or having a fit in, you know, um, that really played a role in like, you know, the way I had ended up behaving. Um, I grew up with a real close knit family. Um, my family is uh, Catholic, um, so they're very, you know, religious and we just grew up very close and, you know, having a relationship with God, going to church, things like that. Um, and I, I love my mom. My mom was a stay at home mom. Um, my dad, he he literally just worked, you know, um, worked his butt off to make sure, you know, we didn't have like have a uh, need for anything, you know. Um, and uh you know, I, my addiction really took a hold, like I said, from getting kicked out of those high schools um, to where I I would go to like I would get arrested and just do some overnighters, uh, misdemeanors like trespassing or drunk public, you know, uh, public drunkenness or, you know, disorderly conduct. Um, so I spent, you know, a few nights there, you know, here and there at uh, Orleans Parish Prison. Um, cause they don't, that's what they call the county jail there. It's, it's actually part of the prison. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely not a good place. Um, so I had seen, you know, my future really heading down some dark roads, but I didn't think it was going to be too serious. 
So I, I try to join the, well, I did join the military um, to try to run from my problems, you know, and I ended up uh, going to joining the Marine Corps and getting, going through boot camp at Camp Pendleton um, in San Diego. Uh, of course, my addiction followed me. Um, 9-11 had occurred right when I was reporting back in from co to combat training. And um, I ended up getting a providing a, you know, a positive UA for marijuana. So I was super disappointed because I had been starting to get processed for uh, discharge. Um, and I was placed in a legal platoon, which basically you're just waiting to to for your paperwork to come in so that you can get your bad conduct discharge. Well, you know, through the process of that, um, there was a lot of shame that I held, you know, in because my unit was getting deployed. Um, and I felt like that was like the first thing that I really like. I had graduated high school, but I didn't even attend my own graduation because I didn't even feel like I was a part of that high school. I only went to it for like a month, you know, and uh so uh, it was me completing Marine boot camp was like very big for me. Like I felt like, you know, I had really accomplished something and made something of myself. And to to go and just kind of, you know, screw that up with my addiction. I really took that hard. Um, a lot of those negative core beliefs that I had about myself really like like sunk in at that time. And I fell back into my addiction really hard. Uh so I ended up, you know, um, breaking into a PX drunk, you know, on base. And I, I ended up in the brig. Uh, I spent. That's a, a gutsy move, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was not. You're going to break into the PX <laughs> yes. on the base. It was not <laughs> planned by any means. I mean, I literally was like blacked out. And um, all I remember is like running in through uh you know a glass door and um and just breaking it like a display case i had a cast on my arm from getting in a fight you know the week before because you know i had these i would get in these blackout drinking spells and um you know i really wouldn't recall what i did you know except bits and pieces and um you know i i did end up in the brig behind that um i was very fortunate not to get you know uh a lot, lot more time than I actually did. So I ended up serving less than a year. And I was so ashamed that I didn't even tell my mom where I was at. You know, I literally didn't call her for like three or four months, I believe it was, until my, uh, the warden, he was a chief warrant officer, he had called me in his office. And he's like, your mom's been calling here and she's been calling your platoon sergeant. And, you know, they, they think you're deployed. They don't even know where you're at. He, he literally like, cursed me out and was like, you're calling your mom right now. And I was like, no, I'm not, you know, and, and he got her on the phone and, um, mm -hmm. she's like, why didn't you call? And, you know, I was like, well, what do you want me to say that, you know, I, I ruined something that I had accomplished that I was really proud of again, you know? And, um, so there was, there was a lot of shame to that. Um, they were very forgiving and like, um, they, I mean, they didn't understand, you know, be, because, my uncle, you know, struggled with addiction. My grandfather struggled with addiction, but they didn't really understand, you know, the the scope of, of you know, what it would take for me to recover and me wanting that recovery, that it's not something you can like kind of force onto someone. But they were supportive in their, you know, own way. And um, they actually came down to see me when I got out. And uh, I just remember I had fell back into my drug use and... I only seen them for like maybe one day of the weekend that they were there. And because I ended up, you know, running around, I was kind of avoiding them and just, you know, wanting to not wanting to feel that shame around them and deal with those feelings and emotions. And, uh, I, I move, I ended up moving back to new Orleans. Um, this was, I would say around 2003, and uh, I continued in my drug use, you know, my family, you know, they, they weren't, uh, they weren't on board with that. I have two younger siblings. So, you know, that wasn't something that they allowed in their home. So I had to kind of figure it out. And, um, and so, you know, I would jump between, 
you know, living, you know, at neighbor's houses or my brother's house or this or that. So I was kind of like, you know, just jumping around from place to place um, and really going through some rough areas. And New Orleans, you know, can be a really, you know, uh, rough part of town, you know, especially if you're out on the streets. And and so, um, you know, I continued in my addiction. I had met my son's mother at the time. Uh and um, I had got this was a toxic relationship, you know, and I really got into my addiction, you know, like like I had just really got into it uh, aggressively, I would say. And um, I was mainly doing like cocaine, but everything from like meth to drinking. My drinking was like terrible. Um, and her. So I found out she was pregnant. Um and I was like, you know what? I'm done with this. If not for me, then I want to get, you know, better for my son, you know, my son to be. And so I had put myself into this um, program. It was called Bridge House and it's a year long program. Um, I had donated my truck to the program so that I could really be committed to it. And um, I was doing really well, um, barely scratching the surface of some of my issues. Um, they're they're kind of like an AA based program. Um, so I had to do a lot of like check and inventory and things like that. And um, about three months into that program, Hurricane Katrina, you know, had struck New Orleans. So um I uh, can't help. Yeah, that did not help. That I mean, it was it just devastated the city. Um, we, a lot of us, well, all of us had gotten displaced. Like my family had went to Texas at the time. Some of my family went to you know other areas. I ended up choosing to go with my pregnant uh, girlfriend at the time to Little Rock, Arkansas, with her family. And uh, we were living out of a hotel, you know, um, off of like FEMA and things like that for it was over a few weeks, you know, because they wouldn't even allow anyone to go back to the city, mm -hmm. you know, just because there wasn't any resources. And um, so we ended up deciding, you know, to come to Colorado. She had a cousin that had lived here for a better part of a year. And it was a cousin that we had lived with before um, in New Orleans. So we decided to move out here. I was do actually doing really well. I had started working for um, this concrete company. I became a assistant plant manager. And, um, you know, I was just working a lot of hours and doing really well. However, you know, um, I felt very isolated from like family and support. Um, I started like kind of hanging out at social events with uh, friends from work and started, it started with uh, drinking non-alcoholic beer, thinking that was okay. But the thing was that I really, <coughs> excuse me, I really wanted the buzz, you know, I really wanted the numbing feeling mm -hmm. and to avoid those feelings. I didn't understand that at the time, mm -hmm. you know, and obviously like the next time I went over there, I had ended up relapsing, and getting in a fight with two individuals, two brothers that were there and like kicking out a cop car. And so uh window. And so I ended up in jail and, uh, you know, it didn't get any better from there. I, I, uh, I actually ended up in Denver city again after I'd gotten out on that for um, some misdemeanor trespassing type thing. They ended up dropping it. But you know, I was I was really spiraling. Um, I had gotten involved with, you know, a bad crowd, um, carrying a weapon, um, <coughs> getting getting really uh, invested in my drug use. And uh, my son was born, had been born, you know, throughout that time. So within six months time, um, I had ended up uh, going into a store, a 7-Eleven, which is actually here in this Aurora community, um, and actually shooting and killing this clerk, um, Miss Judy Gallegos Burton. Um, and I say her name because it's super important for me to, you know, um, to say her name because she was, she was an innocent, uh, person, you know, and, and she had a life and a family that that cared and loved for her and you know uh it wasn't my intention to go in there and do that um 
But I had chosen to carry a weapon. I had chosen to drink. I had chosen to associate myself with these individuals. And, you know, uh, regardless of the fact, you know, um, that's what happened. Um, so, and this was in 2006. So I hadn't even been here for, you know, a year, a little over a year. Barely, barely in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. My son hadn't even, you know, uh, barely turned a year old or actually he hadn't yet <clears throat> turned a year old at the time. And so, uh, you know, I ended up, uh, going on the run for like a week and, and, um, getting arrested and I ended up by the grace of God, getting arrested in uh, El Paso County. There was a huge like um, winter storm that had happened um, that year. And I, I remember I-25 was closed. So I couldn't like, because, you know, obviously like I wanted to just run and like just avoid uh, the the situation so I could just figure things out, you know. Uh, but by the grace of God, I was arrested um, and – uh, I went through, you know, trial process, which was, you know, uh, a two year, little over two year process. Um, I ended up getting sentenced to uh, life without the possibility of parole. Um, I was found guilty of first degree felony murder and second degree murder. And um, I took that very hard. You know, uh, I felt like I was ready or, you know, I, I wanted to take that accountability, but I, I took it really hard because I felt like, you know, that wasn't something that I had intended and, you know, to to have been sentenced that, you know, I, I really, uh, it was very difficult for me. And um, I remember when I originally went to the county, I was kind of like trying to be optimistic and like leaning on my faith. And like, uh, I remember the first incident I had gotten into, like, I was leaning on my faith thinking like, okay, <laughs> things are going to work out, you know, for, for the good God. And, and, uh, you know, um, I had ended up getting into it with some guy and I ended up getting moved. And, um, I, I was in another situation where, uh, someone was like cutting me in a line and it was like, these were like, I was 23 at the time. So I, I was like 150, you know, wet. Like I was like a little skinny kid, thought he knew the world, you know, and um, scared. Uh, and I remember this guy cut in front of me and um, and I was like, hey, man, the line's back here, bro. And for the hot, hot water. And he was like, like blew me off. And I remember thinking, like, I'm not going to do a life sentence, you know, afraid. And, and, and I'm not going to be pushed around or be a victim anymore. And, and that, that was what I had told myself. I remember that very clearly. And, um, I remember this guy filling up his cup. And as soon as he filled up his cup with coffee, I went and slapped it all on him, you know, and we ended up getting in a fight. And, um, that was it. Like I never turned back from that moment. It was like, uh, I remember thinking, I'm not going to be a victim in here. I'm not going to bow down to no one and all these different things because I, I felt like I had the greater part of my life. Like I was always afraid and just felt like uh, I would let things go. And um, and then when I drank, it would, you know, obviously I would it would blow up, you know, and um, so I was heavily involved with, you know, uh, gangs when I was in prison. And uh, that that really. uh that really played a huge role uh, in the way I did my time. Um, I ended up, uh, you know, just hurting people while I was in prison and just doing some, doing a lot of violent acts. Um, you know, I felt like either you do that or, you know, it ends up being done to you, you know? And, and so it was, it, my, my prison journey was, uh, was a lot harder. I made it a lot harder, you know, than it needed to be. Um, I actually ended up getting more time. So I, I ended up with life without the possibility of parole plus, you know, five years because of that. And um, so I felt like there was no hope. There was no way. Like my lawyer would tell me like, your, you know, your appeal is going to go through. And, and I just didn't, you know, I didn't really see that as, you know, um, uh, I felt like it was like a dream, you know, and I just didn't feel like I even deserved that, you know, at the time too. 
So that made it really feel like it wouldn't be a, a reality. Um, and so the more I got involved, you know, the harder it was for me to get away from that, that lifestyle. Uh, I ended up in CSP, um, you know, in various, various times, which is like administrative segregation. Um, I spent years in solitary, um, and literally on the first facility I went to, um, I had ended up in a situation where two individuals had gotten flight for life and um, I ended up in segregation. Um, so uh, I remember thinking after that incident, like I, I would sit in that cell and think like, is that this what I'm created for? Like, is this my purpose? Is this all I'm good for? Like, I was like, if that's the case, then I don't even want to live, you know? And, um, and I remember asking God to like remove that from me to like bind my hands. Like I knew uh, I had remember thinking like, if, you know, if you are who you say you are, then you can do all things. And I don't want to be hurting people and doing these things. So you're going to have to do this for me because I feel like I have to do this. And um, so I remember saying that and uh, and just really struggling, you know, throughout that the better part of 10 years. Um, I literally went to Lyman, Buny, CSP, Centennial. Um, I was like making my rounds. I went to Fremont. Like I, I went to all these different facilities in a matter of, you know, a short period of like 15 years. I had went through, cycled through the entire DOC because I was like a management issue. And um, I just felt like I was just trying to survive, you know, at the time. Uh, by the grace of God, after my second stint in ads in segregation, and I had gotten that, you know, uh, sentenced, you know, to the extra five years, I had made my way to Buena Vista. And um, while I was there, I had gotten word from my appellate lawyer saying that, you know, my felony conviction, uh, felony murder conviction had been overturned. So I remember thinking like, wow, there, you know, nowhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it literally just came like out of left field because I just didn't believe it would ever happen, you know? And mm -hmm. I remember thinking, well, I'm going to have to serve, you know, however much time, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. However old I am when I get out, like, regardless, I have to take this, you know, opportunity. And so I had to go back for resentencing, um, that in itself was an experience. You know, my family was all showed up from New Orleans. They all flew down. My son, um, they all spoke, you know, uh, to the judge and pleaded with him to get, you know, a linear, lean, lenient and sentence. And how long had you been in at that time? I had spent, it was over 10 years. So I think I was right at close to 11 years at the time. And um, so, like, like it was, it was just, it was just super, uh, emotional because I'm here I am, you know, listening to my family plead for my life. And I hadn't even been like fighting for my own life, you know, all these years, like, or fighting for them, you know, all these years, like I had been fighting for the homeboys and what mm -hmm. I had thought, you know, mm -hmm. and surviving and all this difference, uh, other, everything, but, you know, my family and myself and my release, you know, and, um, so, I had seen the parole board that year and I remember I got denied for treatment needs. And when you're in life, have a life sentence, you don't get, you know, a lot of opportunities for programming and things like that. So um, I had wrote um, the TC, which is therapeutic community, the director there at Buena Vista. And I remember because my case manager had originally told me, you're not eligible. Your MRD is way far out, dude. And I was like, well, I'm going to just write him a letter. And then uh, my actually my buddy wrote the letter for me because he knew I was never going to do it. And I ended up getting a kite back saying, absolutely, you're on the waiting list. And I remember mm. thinking, man, well, I'm going to go as soon as I go in. And I was still like involved with gangs at the time. And uh, and I remember when I went in, I was like, you know what? I'm I'm kicking back. Like, I remember telling the homeboys, like, I'm good. Like, I'm kicking back. I'm doing me. Like, I've been watching people come in and out all these years. Like, I'm doing something that's for me. Like, how, whatever you, you know, uh, however you feel about it, so be it. 
And uh, that by itself was huge for me, you know. Um, so I did get into the program. Um, and as you know, like, so this therapeutic community, you're like going through encounter games where they're like probing into behaviors and belief systems and thoughts and feelings and, and tying in like core beliefs, you know, and like really pushing some kind of sensitive areas, you know, some kind of like traumas and things that you may have went through in your life. And uh, so I was really touching in on a lot of those things. And it was it was difficult. Like I was very closed off to it at first. And I remember what really made a change for me was on Father's Day because uh, I had gotten into an argument with some individual and he had literally like sneakered me like while I was in my cell. So he like hit me when I wasn't looking. And I remember like just looking at this dude like like in a rage, like, dude, you know what I'm trying to do. And here you are like putting this in jeopardy and. And I remember him just cussing me out, calling me every which name. And I'm I'm just like biting my like like holding myself back. You know, I'm still cussing him out as well, but like holding myself back. And I remember he storms out of his room and I had another individual come up to me and he was like, man, I seen what happened, man. And that takes a big before he even got the words out of his mouth, just knowing like I like blew past this guy, went down there, told the youngster, like, get up here. We ended up fighting. And um, I remember thinking uh, afterward, like, you know, I could possibly be ruining my chances for parole um, and things like that. And I remember thinking, like, I wanted to stab this dude. Mm -hmm. And I remember because it was Father's Day, like I said, that stood out to me. And I remember talking to my family and them wishing me, you know, happy Father's Day. And I remember thinking like all this process of my resentencing and everyone fighting for me. And why am I thinking like this? Mm -hmm. And I was like, normal people do not think this way. And I was like, I have to change the way I think or I'm never going to get out of prison, mm -hmm. you know. And um, and so I really started buying into, you know, uh Everything that they talk about, like, like the CBT and REBT, I started really reading a lot of self-help books that related to that, like Albert Ellis and just a lot of cognitive, you know, behavioral therapy type books because I wanted to learn it for myself. I wanted to see if what they're preaching to us is, you know, really had some factual basis and whether it was something I could really apply to my life and it would work. You finally found your buy-in. Like normal people don't think, man, I'm going to go stab this dude. <laughs> this no, is, that this is, is crazy, yeah, right? right? Like with everything I have going for me now, like to yeah. think that is ridiculous. You just, you were blessed with something that should have never happened, never happened. you know, in, in, yeah. in, in, in the mind frame that you were going to get out. Like mm -hmm. you never thought that would happen. And now that it's happening, you're still going to jeopardize everything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it it was, that was such a big turnaround for me because, you know, I started really investing in all these groups that they were facilitating. I started, I get I got involved to where I was like facilitating groups mm -hmm. and eventually even mentoring. Mm -hmm. And um, I did get paroled. Yes. So at the end of the year, I got paroled. I was actually on the waiting list. I was one of the last individuals to get paroled to Pier 1. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was super excited about that. Um, I had got progressed to, a. Um, they sent me to a, my first minimum restrictive yard, which is like no longer concrete walls. You have a window, you know, your walls are made out of sheet rock. You're like, you can go to yard, you know, at lots of different times. There's just so much more freedoms. And to me, that was like, I felt like everything was like coming together. Like, like for me, I started really buying into the possibility of getting out. Um, the week that I was scheduled to go to Pier 1 and get paroled, um, my case manager had called me in his office because I was at Arrowhead at the time. And he was like, man, you might want to sit down. And I remember because uh, I was thinking like, man, something happened to one of my family members and, and, he began telling me, he's like, Timecom made a mistake. Um, they credited you too much time. You're not eligible for parole for another five, a half, five and a half years. Do you want to talk to somebody? And I, I remember I must have been saying the same thing because he was like, you're in shock right now. And I, I remember feeling like a kind of like an outer body type 
thing because I, I just it didn't feel real. Like I felt like it was almost like I was drowning and like everything was just muffled. And uh, that was a deep blow. Um, I immediately went to go speak to one of the therapists there. Um, and as I was speaking to her, I had COs come into the office and cuff me up, being that now my eligibility had uh, pushed back so far that I was no longer eligible to be in the ER. So I was put in the hole. Um, I didn't even make my rack for them three days that I was actually in that hole because I just, I remember sleeping on that plastic mat because I was, I felt so broken and defeated. I never felt so alone. I would say in my life than at that time, very time. I mean, I feel like that time was even harder than my original sentence because that was at least something I was expecting to get, you know, um, and it accepted. Yes. And so this one was like, and then I was so fresh from like getting away from the gangs that I remember thinking like, I'm going back to a medium, like, like a mediums, it closes like these yards right away. They have lists, the laundry list. They know who's coming in. Your homeboys are right there waiting for you. And, and I'm just like, man, I'm going to have to deal with, you know, this and that. And I'm like, I was like, you know what? I'm, I was like, man, I, I felt a lot of fear coming back on. But most of all, I just felt like defeated. Like I was never going to get out, you know, again. Um, they sent me to Fremont and to a mentoring, a T, another TC, it was another TC program and I, to be a mentor there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really wasn't feeling it when I first got there. Um, I actually seen a lot of my uh, former therapist there at the symposium today, um, yeah. which is really great, you right. know, because it comes around full circle mm-hmm. and you just get to see these individuals that had such a huge impact on your life. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I got to, I got to go there and I really wasn't feeling it. However, you know, I was in a pod with like these individuals that were really like invested in recovery and they were like some strong individuals, individuals that are now working for like the Denver Dream Center, um, uh, Servicios de la Raza and all these other community partnerships where now like we're, you know, partners out there. Like I reach out to them for resources now, but I didn't know that at the time, you know, I just figured I just got to go here to do my time. Um, and so, you know, I, I I did. I actually ended up relapsing while I was there because as soon as I hit that yard, you know, the homeboys came and actually, you know, uh, gave me some dope. And I remember it burning a hole in my pocket because I had for like a month because I had like changed enough to where I felt like um, I didn't want to poison anyone else. However, uh, I wasn't it was like. But it, but I, I wasn't quite there where I didn't want to poison myself because I was hurting so bad, you know, and um, I ended up relapsing there and like uh, just struggling. And I remember one of my friends, like I was like, you know what, I'm hurting right now, and how is this gonna help me get to what I really want, which is my freedom? And I remember thinking, no, it's not, you know, this is not going to help. So I had to, you know, come clean to some of my peers and tell them like, you know, if you see me out on the yard, then I'm on some BS. So hold me accountable. Mm -hmm. And and really, because that's what they teach you is accountability and transparency, you know, and all these different things. And so that was huge for me because, you know, they were I knowing that knowing that I gave them my word, I had to stick with it and know that they're watching me and, you know, looking out for me and things like that. And so I got back on track. I ended up mentoring there for over two and a half years and working my way back down to uh, that MR, you know, and um, mentoring there some more until um Finally, I became eligible for community, you know, so after the years had passed, after this, you know, heartache and hardship and just struggle and and all these different things, like I had really like grown a lot from this, this experience. I was hurt. Don't get me wrong. I still, you know, carry that pain with me because it was raw. But um, 
I had grown in my conviction. I had grown to where I really like stepped away from the game to where I was like, you know what? I'm good. Like do whatever you want. Like I'm good. Like I'm done. That's not who I am. Like I was able to finally get to a point where I was able to say that out loud and like stand on that and like make choices to where I was like helping individuals, you know, also try to get out of that, you know, speaking positivity and, mm -hmm. you know, mentoring individuals that were also in that same background and demographic. And so it was, it was awesome. And it was like building up my self-efficacy and my, you know, self-esteem and, you know, just removing some of that shame and guilt, you know, from my past and, and building up my self-worth. Um, so it was a process. When I became eligible for community, uh, another blessing that came out of that was my victim's family hadn't contacted me at all, you know, up until that point. And I guess they were notified when I did become eligible again. And so my victim's daughter had reached out to me, you know, and she's like, uh, uh, basically like, I want to know what, before I speak to them, you know, whether I think or not you should get released, I want to know what you've been doing, you know? And I spoke to her and I was like, basically, you know, uh, I had prayed on it before, you know, writing her this letter. And, um, and I, I basically was like, you know, there's nothing I could say or do to ever justify or to bring back or to fix, you know, or rectify what I've done or what I've taken from you. I was like, you know, my mom has been such a support for me throughout this process. She's been there for my ups, downs, because she came visited me in CSP and, you know, in the box and seen them bring me in chains, you know, and um, through glass visits and like just really going through the struggles. And I'm like, my mom was there for all of that. You know, and I stole that from you. And I was like, you know, I, I apologized to her. And um, I basically told her, this is what I'm doing now. This is what I learned about myself. This is what I want to do with my life. And um, she ended up advocating for my release. You know, she wrote me a letter. And I was That's like, so awesome. you know, advocated for my release. And it was such a blessing to get, you know, a little bit of closure and just some, um uh, you know, level of uh, forgiveness, you know, and, and just uh, to be able to receive that was such a blessing for me. And it's huge now to be able to, you know, stand on who I am today um, because of that act of grace, you know, and forgiveness. Um, and so I did end up going through community corrections. Uh, and while I was in community corrections, I had a friend of mine, uh, Kenneth Freeman. He he's actually one of our uh, operation managers for Hazelbrook Sober Living. And he was like, you know what? This position came up, case management, outreach case management. I think you'd be great at it. You've been mentoring guys while you're in prison. I feel like you might as well get paid for what you've been doing for free all these years. And I was like. I was like, OK, I'll, I'll definitely he was like, I'll put your name in the hat. And uh, I interviewed with Jess and Gino and, um, you know, they asked me, you know, about my past and what I, where I am now. And they were like, you know, you have the job. And I was like, wow, this is great. I get to, you know, really give back and get involved in the community. So I was like going from the halfway house to, you know, our community center and like mm -hmm. working with individuals. Um, and then they put me through a peer coaching academy, you know, and I was able to, you know, start doing that. And um, so it was it was just, you know, blessing after blessing. Um, I started I became a supervisor, a housing supervisor at one point for transitional safety zone housing, which is um basically uh harm reduction transitional housing for individuals that are coming in off of active addiction to be able to get into sober living you know mm -hmm. provide that access to be able to provide that negative ua and get into you know sober living and um so i did that for a while as well you know and i've recently gotten back into outreach case management just because i started going to school full time and it was a lot better more mm -hmm. of a flexible fit um, so I've been, I'm in my third semester of college now. Um, Congratulations. Thank That's you. That's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. How old yeah. are you, if I can ask? What's do, you, do you mind ask how old you I are? am? I just turned 40. 40. This last year. In your third year of college. Yes. That's Thank right. You. That's 40. awesome. Yes. Yeah. Because you're never too, it's never too late to go back. No, That's not right. at all. Let's, let's, let's spread that. Yeah. Know. And I actually spent my 40th in Hawaii. So it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. yeah while on parole. So it was just like, 
so many blessings that have come, you know, in these past few years. Um, yeah. And then so basically doing that um, really prepped me for now, you know, doing uh, in reach. Like I've been in, been able to go into some of the prisons now and do some in reach and like, you know, try to provide them individuals with hope where mm -hmm. I was at, you know, a lot of these individuals that I left behind, mm -hmm. um, just seeing them and seeing the life, like, wow, bro, like we know where you came from. We were here with you. Like we, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we were in the trenches with you, like mm -hmm. to see where you're at now. And it, it's just, it's super motivating for me, encouraging for me to keep doing what I'm doing. And then, um, I actually recently got involved. Tomas is actually a part of this is, uh, we were invited to be a part of this, like, uh, it's called Save, Standing Against Violence Every Day, which is a task force um, for gang violence, you know, gun violence here in uh, the city of Aurora, yeah. you know, and and it, it was I, like I, I completely uh, didn't expect it to be such a big uh I guess effort, you know, um, when we went to speak this past week, there was, there was literally like the chief of police, the DA, the, um, the, uh, what, what is it? The, uh, attorney general, there was, um, the mayor mm -hmm. and they all spoke, you know, right before Tomas and I had to speak. So it was super humbling, um, just to be, you know, on the other side, you know, of, you know, uh, this, uh, these, my bad choices, you know, and just to be on the you other side. You have a side. lot to give back. So, yeah. I mean, this is, it's kind of what, you, what you're supposed to do now. Absolutely. Yeah. I def definitely feel like a duty um, mm -hmm. to do that now. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's, you know, been very huge and just being a part of that. And now, you know, coming here, even sharing my story, like, it, I mean, it's so awesome to, to just be a part of this recovery community. I love our community partners. Like I work with so many individuals that got out and that were like juvenile lifers and they're all just doing great things, you know, um, you know, some, something stood out to me was one of the individuals had said, uh, at that, um, event, they were like, you know, I'm glad to see you're doing well. You know, that doesn't necessarily happen, you know, too often. And I was thinking like, you know, actually it does, you know, like from my experience, like these individuals that I've seen that had a lot of time and really invested in their recovery, they're doing great. Like mm -hmm. these are the individuals I like could lean on and like reach out to help individuals get out of those situations. Mm -hmm. So I'm just super fortunate to have had so many people like support me in my recovery, everything from my therapist to my peers, to uh, my family, to, um, you know, my lovely fiance right now, like she's been such a huge help because a lot of that stuff that, you know, you, you think you're gonna just leave it in there, but you bring it mm -hmm. out. Like I have a lot of issues with like, post-traumatic stress and just like high anxiety and yeah. uh, a lot of things that have surfaced, you know, throughout my, you know, integration back into society, but, you know, um, not giving into those fears and using those tools and leaning on these individuals for support. Like I couldn't have done it without all that. Like community is like key, you know, that with the foundation of my faith, you know, um, have just been so foundational for, where I'm at today. You also had to make a, a conscientious decision of changing how you act and what you do on a daily basis. You talked a lot about being involved in gangs and the violence in prison mm -hmm. and being so entrenched in that, that I literally could hear you saying that I was a different person. How Absolutely. I spoke, how I talked, how I walked, what I liked, what I did, my, my personal hobbies, not that you have many in prison, but you know, all of those things were for a different person than who you are now. How did you get to that point of where you are now? What, you know, you had to conscientiously make these decisions on, I'm going to speak differently. I'm going to act differently. Absolutely. So I'm what so was that glad like? you touched on that. Yeah. So when I went through the TC and Buny, we have actually single cells there and they're like old cells, like bars. And like, it was like, we're in upper North and it's like one of them old facilities, one of the older facilities, you know, in Colorado. And it, um, but I had that single cell and I remember when I wanted to change the, you know, like my thinking and my behavior, I remember really getting, digging into, you know, uh, my Bible and the word of God and actually putting into practice, you know, a lot of that discipline, like, uh, mm -hmm. changing the way I speak, like really, 
I found out a lot of the things that I said was negative, you know, and uh, derogatory or like aggressive. And I had to like take a step back. And sometimes I wouldn't talk, you know, like I just wouldn't, mm. you know, talk for a while. Listen I wouldn't before watch you TV. speak. Yes. And I would remove myself from other stimulation. Like I listen to certain type of music and things mm -hmm. like that. And I found like, you know, the more I did that or the less I did of this, you know, I started getting different outcomes. And so I really started, you know, stressing the importance of what I'm putting in and what I'm putting out. And don't get me wrong. Like I still cuss, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, uh, still like a violent, my anger, like yeah. a violent R rated movie and <laughs> listen to a hardcore hip hop song sometimes. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Some DMX on. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah absolutely. DMX, <laughs> but I yes, try to okay. limit it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You know, our rough riders, the 504 boys, you know, yeah, shout yeah, out to you. Yeah. yeah. But come on, no Wayne, come on. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I found, but I can't do that I, no, I, all yeah, the time yeah, exactly. now, you know, and I had to limit that. And not try to, to follow that lifestyle either, which, you know, it's very common for all of us to to follow well, your celebrities, to follow the culture, you know, the hip hop culture. It's cool to be like this. And a lot of times that's gang culture and it's derogatory and it's uh, overly aggressively sexual and yeah. so on. So, and so you have to conscientiously go. I'm, I'm listening to it. I'm not doing it. Yeah. Like really, you have to like really look in and like say like, well, who do I want to be? Mm -hmm. You know, who am I? Who am I? And who do I want to be? And how is this helping me be that person? You know, and it was like there was a lot of, you know, growing pains in that. Like I like for a long time, you, you've heard where I had like one foot in, one foot out. And yeah. I was like mm -hmm. kind of like on a razor's edge. Like my mom would just always say, it always sticks with me because she'll say, take that leap of faith. And I'm like, easy for you to say, like, mm -hmm. I'm living here. Like you go home. Like I have to face these individuals. Like I, these doors close and it's me and someone else, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I've seen and, and been a part of like some, some horror stories, you know, like things that like, you know, there's no secret that I'm or no like uh, it's there. It's just not possible to not, you know, carry that and be traumatized over mm -hmm. some of those things, you know. And um, so, yeah, it took a lot. It really did take a lot of uh, effort and like wanting soul searching and practice. And, you know, I, a lot of times I kind of like, oh, I guess uh kind of overlook that, you know, um, from where I'm at today. But those were months and years, you know, I didn't realize like that was actually been months and years to where I was practicing those things, like who I sat with, you know, there was like mockery mm -hmm. and things like that, little snickers. And, you know, some sometimes like, like, I feel like God knew what I could handle because sometimes there would be like Snickers behind my back because he knew my pride at the time couldn't handle, couldn't handle it. it. So, mm -hmm. you know, but, but God was just graceful in like, you know, giving me what I could handle and like really putting me in situations where I felt like, uh, I had ways out, you know, and, um, I'm so I think it it's wonderful. important. That I, I really appreciate you saying that how influential God was in, in where you are today. Because there was a point where you said, you know, that you they, they gave you another five years. You thought mm -hmm. you were getting out. You're getting another five years. And what popped in my head at that time was God was saying, all right, I want to see if you're really ready. Yeah. Right, I'm going to give you five more years to see if you're really ready. Absolutely. Because you know, otherwise you're going to get out and you ain't ready and you're going to be back. Yeah, you know? faith isn't faith unless it's tested. Mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. And you yes. were tested yes. multiple times. Absolutely. Multiple times. Um, yeah, very a lot. And I think that really that really served to build like strong conviction. Um now in knowing who I am, knowing mm -hmm. who I, knowing who I was like raised, you know, the man that I was raised to be. And um you know, taking the steps to get there and, and become him, become that person. Yes. That to reinvent myself. Really touched me about your story too, John, was your mom, just how much oh, yeah. your She's mom's a faith and just the hope that she had. She never gave up hope. Oh, never. Never one time. Never. She would visit me in CSP and was like, I would be like, you know what, mom? It got to a point where I was like, you know what? You need to just forget about me. 
And she's like, what? Like, you ain't going to tell me who to love and how long to love and when to stop loving. She's yeah. like, I remember on, that stuff yep. with me. And I was like, okay. She was like, I'm going to keep coming up, yeah. you know, regardless. And, and she did. She would bring her and my dad. Uh, they would bring my son up, um, you know, at least once, like once a year, if not every two years. And they would come up like twice a year. Um, so I did have a lot of support in that regard. And, um, you know, they supported me financially while I was incarcerated. Um, yeah. So it's, I did have a lot of support. I, j- I just needed to lean on that, you know, um, and f- support myself too. Yeah. Believe yeah. in yourself. And then just that renewed sense of hope. Yes. That's huge. That is so huge uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. to have some hope like that, that, you know, like those long sentences, like a life without the possibility for parole. I just feel like that's just such a hard sentence. To well, that's try why to, you ended up with five more years because you no hope. You, you had no hope at no a point. Hope. Yeah, not at all. Nothing I could like. Nothing. Tangible. It's a miracle that you're here now. Mm-hmm. It you is. It, it truly is. You know, uh, I'm super grateful. Um, and there's no looking back. Like there's after that. Like I feel like you know um, I'm. I was blind and now I could see and I just want to run toward that light. All right. With our last couple of minutes here, you're now working as a social work case manager at Hazelbrook Sober Living. Yes. How does that feel? Um, It feels great. Like I love what I do. I love being able to support individuals. I love being able to uh, just reach them where they're at, you know, meet them where they're at and connect with them on a level that many people you know, aren't able to connect with them, to empathize with their situation and to just support them and give them that hope and motivation and just breathe life into them. A lot of these individuals, they don't realize their potential. And that's the saddest part. When I tell them, I'm like, dude, like you have the potential for great greatness. Like this isn't your purpose. You weren't, your purpose wasn't to be, you know, in drug addiction and just to, you know, live in squalor. You have a great purpose and it's up to you to, you know, walk in that purpose and become, you know, that individual that you were meant to be. So I love being that. I love the platform. I love the opportunity that, you know, uh, my employers have given me. I love our community partners and relationships. I just love, you know, being a part of, you know, this recovery community. I couldn't, they're my extended family. You Do know, you have so. an office number people can reach you at? Yes. That's uh 720-357-7238. 720-357-7238? Yes, that's correct. All right. John Doubleday. From New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. The Big Easy. The Big Easy mm-hmm. has been our yeah. guest. Dude, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you um, for having me. Yeah. One last thing with these last couple of minutes. Um, Judy Gallegos, you, her daughter spoke on your behalf to help you get released from prison. How much is that an important part of your recovery and where you are today? That was huge. Um, just because I, I've, you know, I carried a lot of shame and, um, and just, uh, kind of regret and mm-hmm. um, more so shame, you know, for, for that. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and I had to like really get to a place where I can forgive myself. Mm-hmm. So where I wouldn't use that as an excuse to continue in my behavior. And I think that was so key to hear that, to really like them hard days where, you know, I'm really struggling and really just afraid or want to go back to some type of behavior. Like, yeah, that's what I think I was, what I was trying to huge. say is how much is that part of what makes you never ever turn back? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. Um, just that grace and forgiveness. Like now I'm able to take that also into like when people, you know, talk to me kind of short or are very, or, maybe disrespectful or like struggling in their recovery. I'm able to just kind of like, I know the grace that was shown me. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to just kind of put my pers- personal uh, feelings to the side and like really connect with them and try to support them and whatever they're going. So it was huge. It's been huge. Um, my mother passed away and she saw me sober before she passed away. And that's kind of like what I cling to. Like that's my my torch that I hold on to is my mother. I got it. That's how she saw me. 
And so I got to keep going like that. And in some ways I find it similar that you did this for you, but you also have to keep doing this for her. Yeah, I you definitely feel duty bound. For, yeah, you have to keep yeah. doing this for her. Absolutely. Uh, John Doubleday, our guest. New Orleans, the big easy, Louisiana. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Malhai, um, if you would like, if you missed any of this program and you want to hear it in its entirety, please look for it on all of your podcasting um, um apps you can also find us on youtube at sharing our stories and on facebook.com slash sos sharing our stories uh, please like share and sub- subscribe share this program um, if you know somebody that needs to listen to it email it to it pass it to them text it to them and uh, please thank you for being a part of sharing our stories and we hope that you join us again next week right here